It's John. Thank you for listening to a very special episode of Deep Dive. I think everyone knows that Neil Finn is on the in the Holy Trinity in my book. It goes uh, Bowie, Hollow Notes, and Neil Finn slash Crowded House. He is the man to me. And our guest this week is Jeff Apter. Jeff is a noted Australian uh, writer. He's written for Rolling Stone. He's written several books, mostly on, on Australian artists like the Bee Gees and ACDC and the Finn Brothers, actually, Silverchair, Carl Urban. <clears throat> anyway, last year, he released a book on Neil Finn called Don't Dream It's Over. Now, that book is, we were trying to figure this out. I've been holding on to this interview for a little while because we wanted to time it with the release of the book in the U.S., which I believe is happening on the 13th of February. That's when the paperback uh, version of the book is available, I think, everywhere. So, anyway... Hopefully, if you are a Neil fan, that you will seek out this book. I don't know if you even knew that it was out there. But anyway, it is essential reading for anybody who is a fan of Neil like I am. And I imagine a lot of you are too. That's why you are here and listen to the show. Jeff is so great. And this book is so much fun. Well, I don't. I mean, it's fun because it's about Neil, but it's so well researched. And it takes all the information that you, some rumors you may have heard or stories you may have heard out here or uh, opinions you may have had or thoughts you may have had and it can puts them all down concisely into a book where it sets the record straight i was so grateful to have this anyway jeff is a great guy and i was really grateful that he talked to me and i hope you enjoy this too it goes bowie hollow notes and neil as wow. like my holy trinity of music that i love and um so I talk about him with whoever will talk with me whenever they'll do it. <laughs> so your book was like a, you know, a blessing manna from heaven that finally there was a, someone had a collected work uh, about the guy that I loved so much. So, I mean, did let's start it? there. Yes, I did. I, um, I will say I didn't, most of it, I kind of, a lot of it, I knew well, being I the diehard so. fan that I, yes, being the diehard <laughs> fan that I am, but it was so great to have it all in one spot, to have it organized, to have to hear from someone who obviously knows and loves them like I do, having that piece was so crucial and so uh, excellent for in reading the book. So I'm curious, outside of just being from down under, what is your relationship with Neil and or the Finns and or Split Ends or Credit House? Well, it's sort of there's two different sides to it. I, I think I think I mentioned in the book that. You know, I was a kid. I was 17. It was nineteen. I remember 1970. You, I think it's the last chapter is you talking about seeing yeah. them live or something. Yes. And a friend of mine said, you know, it was midweek. It was the middle of winter. And, you know, really, there wasn't anything going on. And at that point, Split Ends hadn't recorded True Colors. I Got You hadn't come out. They were still a cult band in a lot of ways. They'd had a sort of hit here with Icy Red. Um, they've, they've done a lot of touring. They had an American deal. They had a British deal. They'd worked with Roxy Music. Yeah, they worked with really great people, but just never quite cracked the mainstream. And um, I'd seen them here. There was a really influential television show here in the seventies and eighties called Countdown, and it was like it was like the British show Top of the Pops, 
and I guess sort of like um, Bandstand, Dick Clark's Bandstand, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it was what it was really, really good here in doing was introducing an audience in a far-flung part of the country, say in Perth, over on the West Coast, to a band that was playing in Sydney and Melbourne, right? Mm-hmm. So what would happen, and it really broke bands like ACDC, ACDC in particular, mm-hmm. really developed a following in Australia and then internationally through this show. And I'd seen split ends on Countdown because they were perfect. It was a really, they came in around the time that Colour TV wasn't introduced here until about 1975, right? Wow. Yeah, I know, right? And um, they were one of the first bands to appear on Countdown in all their sort oh. of... Taylor um, made for color TV. Yeah. Yes. So with these old Crombie bespoke suits mm-hmm. and the wild haircuts and the big, you know, the, the makeup piled on their faces and those kind of what Neil used to call our zany looks that they used to pull. They were perfect. They were tailor made for it. So I'd seen them there, but hadn't seen them play live. And they were playing midweek show in a venue in the city there was really, it was a disco. This is at the end of the disco period. So during the week, they would host bands, and on the weekend, it had turned into, what's it What's it from Saturday Night Fever, Utopia, whatever the hell that club oh, is okay. called. Uh-huh. You know, they turned into an Australian version of that. So, right. you know, it's got the, the mirror ball, and it's got the illuminated floor, and on they come. And there's only 100 people in the room, you know, because, like I said, they still were a cult band at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was like, being smacked right between the eyes for on a number of levels. Visually, they were fantastic. You know, you couldn't take your eyes off these guys. On stage, they were really physical. They used to crash into each other, you know, and, and really, really dominate the stage. And they were quite, if you were down the front, they were quite threatening, actually. It was like, geez, I have the, one of these big, because Neil, Tim in particular, was a pretty big guy. Yeah. Eddie, um, uh, Noel Crombie was not only weird, but he was really tall. Uh-huh. And you're going, I hope he doesn't fall off the stage because I don't want to wear this guy, you know. <laughs> and if I get poked in the eye with that haircut, I'm done, you know. Yes. And they were really quite intimidating. I was only 17 and it was like, holy shit, what is this? And then they started to play the songs. And at that point, yeah. they were developing the songs for True Colours. Mm-hmm. And that's when you, I, just, I remember just thinking, wow, this band's like destined for something really great. Yeah. Not only do they look great and they perform well and they've got great charisma on stage, They've got the songs, but also they've got this young guy down the front who's occasionally singing vocals who's just, you know, he's a pinup. He's yeah. a handsome-looking dude, whereas yeah. the others were sort of too art school, I guess, in uh-huh. their own way. Yes. So, so yes. there was all this stuff going on. And, you know, within in Australia, with it, so that was July. By the turn of the year, by the new year, they were number one all around the country, you know, and, and making their way up the charts internationally as well. So I saw them at a really interesting and, and very pivotal moment in their career. Wow. So I was really, I was just, it was just dumb luck. You know, I yeah. just happened to go to the gig. And I remember walking away just thinking, holy shit, this band is great, you know. Yeah. And, you know, like I say, within six months, they're big stars. And then fast forward what, 15, 20 years and I'm working as a music writer mm-hmm. and I've got the opportunity to interview and talk to these guys, you know, and in different kind of um, guises, um, did some work when Tim was doing a solo record, uh, was in the studio actually when Neil and Nick Seymour got back together as Crowded House to release Time on Earth. Oh, and they were, doing, they were previewing the album. They were doing an interview to a, a little audience in the studio. And that was really that was really important because that was post-Paul Hester. That was a really yes. very uh, powerful kind of experience. Yes. And then seeing Crowded House more recently, I guess three or four times, um, different lineups, different formats. So mm. I've got this over a course of, you know, it's now over 40 years. 
I've had this range of really interesting experiences with Neil and Tim, crowded house, split ends. So I just felt I was in a really fortunate position, both as a punter, as a fan, sure. and as a writer. So sure. hopefully I brought those two things together with the book. Yeah, I didn't know until getting ready to talk to you, obviously. I've heard your name before over the years, but I'm, I'm, I apologize. I hadn't read any books. And it's, But you have a Finn Brothers uh, book. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> You are forgiven. It's okay. Well, I, I will make up for that. I promise. But you have a Finn Brothers book. And so I wondered I wondered what you learned in Neil in putting together Neil's book that you may not have already known from writing the Finn Brothers book. Yeah, well, it was an interesting series of circumstances. What happened is I did that book in, I think, 2010. It's called Together Alone, The Story of the uh -huh. Finn Brothers. And it's really about split ends with... Okay. Uh, with episodes obviously about Woodface and the Finns solo stuff that they did together. But a good chunk of that book was about the Split Ends experience. So what happened is I got the rights back for that book after about 10 years. And I thought, well, I could just find a publisher who wants to republish it. And then I thought, no, that's just, I'm missing out on a great opportunity here because so much had happened since then. Um, you know, you can list them. Crowded House got back together. Uh, Neil and Tim had done that. Well, I wanted to focus on Neil. He'd done a number of interesting solo things. He'd gone and joined Fleetwood Mac, for God's sake. Yes, you know, yes. <laughs> all this stuff had been happening. He'd started to work with his sons. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is too good to just, just reissue it as it is. So I really just stripped it apart, kept some of the split ends and Neil and Tim stuff, but really focused on the last 10 years, which to me are, you know, as interesting as, as the previous 30 of, of Neil's yes. career. Because so much has happened, and so much, some of it out of the spotlight, under the radar, like some of his solo stuff, mm -hmm. but then really big things like reforming Crowded House and joining Fleetwood Mac. So yeah. I thought it was too good an opportunity to to let that stuff go. Um, what did I learn? Um, I, rem I, <laughs> I discovered yet again that the Finns can be quite elusive interview subjects. Uh, okay, I wondered about that because it's. <laughs> I noticed. Uh, neither of them are all the interviews or all the quotes for them come so from other true. sources. Yes. And some of, some of my own, some of my own from sure. magazine interviews and work that I've done with them in the past, but yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess I timed it badly. Neil, it was, a, I started to write it around the time of Neil going on the road with Fleetwood Mac and then the intervention oh. of COVID and all these things. But um, I think my sense was that I reckon down the line, both Neil and Tim will write their own books. Good. And are probably, you know, hedging their bets to do their yeah. team in particular. But I think Neil might have one up his sleeve yeah. as well, which is great. You know, it's not, uh, um, it's a, it's a, it's a bit disappointing that you don't get fresh material from them. But I was lucky enough to be able to not only have a great uh, source of material, but also have some contacts very, very close to them. Who, as I mentioned to you before, people who probably know them know yeah. their work better than the men than Neil himself. Yeah. So um, that was really handy. Don't you find too, this is something that I kept thinking while I was reading your book, is that oftentimes, like uh, just over Thanksgiving, I read Bruce Springsteen's book mm -hmm. that he wrote about himself, Born to Run. <laughs> That's that guy and, from Jersey, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. you may have heard of him before. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's a great book, but I, you come away realizing that this, the, the focus of the book is not always the best source of information for yeah, their own book. Yeah, because absolutely. they want to tell it from their perspective. They, especially if it's someone like Bruce or Neil, who is still in the public eye, they have a 
an image to maintain, a facade to keep up, you know? Yeah. So they're not going to let you in that deeply behind the scenes. And yeah, so getting reading your book, which let's be honest, Neil is not a controversial figure anyway. That's one thing that I that came away from the book. Yes. The family is tight. Even the relationship between him and Tim is not as complicated as I imagined. Um, they're fairly decent, upright people who Neil especially has not made a lot of bad decisions or uh, controversial things or rebellious things in his life. Yeah, so exactly. it's not like there's a lot of drama there. But yeah, I was yeah, reading this yeah. thinking, it is so nice hearing someone else narrate this story, because I bet if Neil did it himself, you'd learn some things, but you may not get a complete story because artists just don't do that about them. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, I work as a ghostwriter as well. I've probably ghostwritten a dozen books now, with mainly with musicians, but also with some sports stars. Uh, you would have heard the soccer player Tim Cahill. I saw you on, your, on your website, yeah. yes. You know, as well as a lot of Australian musicians, and that's a totally different thing. I say to people that I ghostwrite with, remember, this is your story and your words. You know, it's memoir, it's memories. It doesn't have to, it's not a biography. Yeah. It's very different to that. It's what you want it to be and what you want to discuss. It's your book. It's not yeah. me writing a biography of you. And once they get their heads around that, they realize it's a totally different, as you say, it's a totally different concept. Right. It really is. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, um, really, it's very handy that I do that. Because yes. then when I go to my own work in my own name, it's a totally different approach. Good point. You know, I take a totally Good different point. approach. And like, like I've got a, uh, a responsibility, I guess, to not only present things correctly and accurately, but also to put them in some kind of order. Right. You know, I read wondered... a lot of memoirs bounce all over the place, uh, timeline-wise. True. You know, yeah, Very true. I don't do um, one thing, going back to what I mentioned earlier, there are some – there's few key – topics or subjects or whatever that I wanted to throw your way and see what you thought about. Number one, as I said a second ago, the relationship between Neil and Tim was not as complicated as I imagined. I think as from an outsider's perspective, we always assume, and there, this is, there is truth to this, that the younger brother supersedes the older brother who invites them into the rock world to show business. And that guy becomes, the younger brother becomes the better songwriter, the more respected, the more noteworthy, all these kinds of things. And, that the, and the older brother is sitting there seething with jealousy about how unfair the world is to them. You know, don't you know that I made you? I gave yeah, you yeah. this platform. And there, I, yes, there is probably some, some of that. But the two of them go in and out of each other's lives when they want to. Uh, I didn't get the impression that they go through periods of hating each other or infighting or silence or whatever. If Tim wants to work with Neil, he will. If Neil feels like working with Tim, he will. If they feel like collaborating, they will. If not, they are fine going off doing their own thing. Do I? Yeah. That was a misconception that I sort of righted from your book. Do you? Yeah. What do you think about their relationship? I think what you said there is very fair. I think um, that whole kind of um, sibling rivalry stuff is the stuff that I would have manufactured when I was at Rolling Stone, you know, sure. and we do that very well. We very do that good very point. Well. Yes, very good point. Yes. <laughs> you need an angle. What's your angle? Sibling rivalry. You know, it's, yes. it's almost, we used to say, it's almost Shakespearean, you know, these two mm -hmm. characters. And you're, you're absolutely right. In some instances, there was um, some resentment, definitely, 
But also once that simmered, for Tim in particular, it was like, fuck, my brother has done so well. Well done you, you know. Mm -hmm. And also mm -hmm. remember, I think people talk about Woodface and tend to remember that as, you know, the brothers clashing on the stage. No, the best part of Woodface was the songs they wrote together yes. for that record. Yes. Probably should have been a Finn Brothers record separately, mm -hmm. that, but that's another that's another discussion. But um, I think strip away all the sort of baggage of that, you know, that beat up about the two mm -hmm. brothers at each other's throats and so on. Um, look at the music that they made together yes. and continue to make together the performances that they do together. It's very rare that a crowded house tour goes by when Tim doesn't come up on stage at least once. Yeah. You know, um, think about their big farewell show they did in 1996 at the Opera House here up in Sydney. You know, mm -hmm. Tim played a very big role in that. The great Finn Brothers records that they've done, mm -hmm. you know, Finn and Everyone Is Here, they're wonderful records, you know, mm -hmm. probably the culmination of their songwriting, their mutual yeah. song. So, yeah, I think, um, look, it was a pretty good angle when I was in the magazine game. We used to like mm -hmm. that angle. I used mm -hmm. it a lot. I won't deny that. Sure. The reality, The reality is that they get on fine. I'm sure, I don't think they sit at opposite ends of the table at Christmas lunch. No, I got they're that. Yeah, they probably sit That's maybe across from each other. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got that exact feeling. It, um, and Tim found his thing later on too. Keep that in mind. In more yeah. recent years, particularly here, he started to work in the theatre as a writing songs, writing music for the theatre, and he's done really, really well. It's you interesting know, it's you mentioned this, Jeff, because when I had Tim on here last year, yeah. I I had always been so deeply Team Neil that Tim's solo work never quite hit me the same way, you know? <laughs> and in getting ready to talk to him, I thought, I better catch up. I better get deep back into the stuff that I didn't know as well. I am, this feels weird to say, I am so much more impressed with what Tim has put out the last 20 years or so than I am what Neil has put out the last really? 20 years yeah, or so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he certainly follows his instincts. I mean, the record he did that was called Alt, A-L-T, with um, yeah. uh, Liam from Hothouse Flowers and yes. uh, what's his White. That's a great record. And it's, yes. but it's, it's, you know, three drunken blokes singing in a pub somewhere, but it's fantastic, you know. And I think he's done another record only with one member of the band just recently you know with, uh, yeah last year it was the forensics album with eddie yeah. that was so good and phil manzanera who was also on here last year has worked. Play guitar. yes and i love <laughs> phil and phil works closely with tim and i just like i didn't i haven't listened to it since it came out because i was kind of underwhelmed but like the um end of silence the yeah. album neil made that was yeah, that didn't really grab me you know, the last Crowded House album I thought was just kind of okay, but I've been more into what Tim's done the last few years, which yeah. maybe this is not the venue I should be admitting that, but it's just true. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, I, like I say, I think that, yes, there were, like going back to your question, yes, there were moments when Tim was probably feeling, why him, not me? Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, in more recent times, he's probably hit more of a purple patch than Neil. I agree. It's yeah. Like I say, film and TV work here, sorry, film and theatre work that he's done here is award-winning stuff. It's renowned. Yes. And, you know, he keeps uh, he's scoring. I think he's doing some new stage work soon, you know, and he's wow. in his 70s. He's not a young guy. No. And he's as prolific as ever. So, you know, well done him. Yeah. He's fantastic. Funny guy. Curious, yes. curious, I think he's a curious character is the best way to describe it. That's here. a good way of putting it. Um, <laughs> let me – so, okay, there were a couple of things – that I 
came away from your book still a little fuzzy on, and maybe that's on purpose. I don't know, but let's talk about them. Number one, first and foremost, one of the things, again, like Tim and Neil's relationship that I understood so much better after your book. Another thing that I understood, I was always under the impression that Neil and Paul, when Paul left, were at odds. And that in some ways, the um, Here on Earth, or the Time on Earth album, was almost a cash-in, in a way. Like, <laughs> Paul's not here anymore. The difficult one is out of the picture. We can make an album now, and we can dedicate it to him and his memory, but now we can kind of carry on. But I realized that that wasn't the case, that... Paul, I still don't quite understand what is at the heart of Paul's depression, the dark mm. periods that you talk, mm. talked about in the book, other than maybe just like bipolar or manic depression or something biological. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not a, my wife's a psychologist, but I, I'm oh. not. And I think it would be fair to say that he was a guy that suffered some pretty serious mood swings. I mean, think about... There's a few things to consider. When he, for people who don't know, when Paul Hester left the band, it was smack dab in the middle of an American tour overnight. Mm -hmm. It was like that. I think they got to Atlanta and he said, I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And which I'm sure Neil would probably at first thought was a joke. It's like, come mm -hmm. on, we've got 50 more dates. Yeah. You know, we've got a record to promote. We're on the charts. We're playing lots of big shows. And he said, no, I just can't do it anymore. I think his, his partner was pregnant with their first child. He was sort of torn. Neil already had kids by that stage um, and had found a way to juggle the band and his and his family life. But uh, Paul was struggling with that, probably struggling with some, yeah, some psychological disorders. He smoked a lot of pot. <laughs> this guy smoked a lot of grass. Pot, pot <laughs> is a constant theme through this whole book. Yeah, yeah. You know, for no, some they, people it's fantastic, you know, and yeah. it, it didn't hurt the Beatles, you know, no, did them no. a lot of good. But, yeah. you know, for some people it does create some complications. I can't, I'm not blaming that, but I'm just throwing it out there. As I was going to bring it up if you didn't, yes. Um, he So he really, I mean, he bailed. Mm -hmm. You know, he left the band in the middle of a tour where they had to go and I think they tapped Cheryl Crow's drummer for shows, mm -hmm. you know, because they're playing with Cheryl Crow. So can you drum mm -hmm. with us tonight? You yeah. know, and these were not small club shows. They were playing to 5,000 people in big theatres. And, uh, yeah. it, I mean, I think Neil would have had every reason to be very pissed off at him for a period mm -hmm. of time to have done that to him, to have just mm -hmm. said, i got to go. Didn't tell him at the start of the tour, you know. Yeah. If he'd said, look, I, I'll leave at the end of the tour, that would have been totally different. Mm -hmm. um, but he didn't do that. And he really yeah. left them in the, the lurch, you know. Yeah. It created a very, very difficult situation for them. Um I think you saw, I saw here that olive branches were extended pretty yes. regularly. What happened with Hester is he became a, a TV show host here. He hosted a lot. Like a, the shows he had were like, have you seen Later with Jules, the UK yes. show? I love yeah, that. He was yes. hosting shows based on that kind of style. So okay. he presented bands. I remember going to one week that he hosted where Coldplay were playing at the Opera House. And, wow. you know, you'd go there to these shows to see Paul Hester because he was so damn funny mm -hmm. and such a natural, you know. Yes. And there were a number of performances by Neil, by Neil and, and Nick Seymour, you know, sort of surrogate crowded house moments mm -hmm. in the period between Paul leaving the band and Paul committing suicide. So mm -hmm. there was definitely some connection there. A bit, of, uh, I'd say Neil had a, a little, there's some lingering resentment about what had happened and how it had fallen apart. Um, and for Nick Seymour, you know, when Neil finally pulled the pin, 
his big resentment was that he felt that the band still had that next big record. There's right. a line in the book where he rings up Neil and said, I just heard OK Computer. That could have been us. I that will never been. forget that quote. That was amazing. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. he was, um, you know, he was someone who had his yeah. plans for the band were as, as grand as Neil's. Yes. Um, so, yeah, look, uh, you know, I, st I think they were really, really close, although I think that Paul was probably a little closer to Tim because they'd shared a house. You know, remember, Paul was in Split Ends for about five minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the version 27 of Split Ends, the yes. final one, was, was Paul Hester on drums. Yeah. And he grew very close to Tim. They shared a house in Melbourne They're for roommates. I remember yeah. I wrote down in my notes, how would it be? I would love to see like a reality show of the ah. two of them as roommates. You know what I mean? Hess, Hess and yes. Tim's. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think it would have been pretty lively and probably a bit messy. Probably, probably. a bit messy. You're probably yeah, yeah. right. I'm seeing yeah. pizza boxes. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. When I remember asking, when I went to the, and I remember this really clearly in my mind, going to a, a pre-release uh, listening session for Time on Earth. It was in a studio in Sydney where they'd worked actually on the record. And it was Nick and Neil and just like half a dozen of us journalists. And I heard the song Silent House, and at the time I didn't realise it was a co-write with um, Natalie Maines from the Dixie, Dixie Chicks. Chicks yeah. And but I thought it was I thought it was Tim writing. I th thought it was Neil writing about Paul. Oh. And I, I said to him, I remember asking him at the, the listening party, "That's the centerpiece of the album, isn't it?" Mm -hmm. And he agreed with me. But we didn't really at that time. I didn't have the credits and didn't know yeah. that it was actually Natalie Maine writing about her grandmother. So it sort of fit. And when you mm -hmm. see them play it live. I think he's certainly taken it to mean something else, maybe in Neil's mind. Okay. And I think it's definitely a comment. And there's a number of songs on that record that are yeah. observations about loss. Yes. And it, it, it wouldn't take, you know, a degree in psychiatry to understand what Neil's getting at with his yes. lyrics there. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 he got the loss deeply. I think, did he milk it? He No, I think he did. I think he did Paul's legacy a huge service. I think because he did too. Subsequently, he'd play shows. Every Crowded House show, Paul gets a mention. Yes. You know, there's always yeah. mention of, you know, that, that Crowded House is to a, a, some degree part of Paul Hester, you know, the, the, the role he played. So, it is. you know, he was, he was Hester the Jester, you know. Yes, he was. There's, also, there's a really telling comment in the book. Um, so after Crowded House, Paul went back to Melbourne. He bought a cafe. He was running a cafe, but he was also playing back playing pubs. Melbourne... Um, to anybody who doesn't know, is the live music capital of Australia. Oh, it's, really? It's a little more affordable than Sydney. It's got a lot of great venues. It's got a really good music community. It's a lot like New York, I guess, in a lot of ways. Probably. Um, so he went back there, formed a band called The Largest Living Things, and mm -hmm. he was suddenly a band leader. And there's a comment he goes, my God, he said, I had no idea. I had no idea the shit that Neil used to have to put up with from Nick and I. You know, we were always late. We were always sleeping yes. in. We were always missing appointments. Now I'm the guy ringing yep. everybody in the band saying, you've got to be here at 12 o'clock, you know, yep. sound checks at four. He said, I had no idea. If I had any idea what Neil had to bear in Crowded yes. House, I would never have done that, you know. I so remember I that, that exact part. part. And that, was, that hit me hard when I read that part in there. That was big. Yeah, I uh, I remember a while ago watching a clip on YouTube of Paul on a television show. I think they were cooking, and he was, I think it was an Australian show, and he was clearly upset and out of it and angry. And 
Neil and Nick are making something in the kitchen and Paul's sitting off to the side, just like, I hate it here. And I hate these guys. And I don't want to do this anymore. He's doing his crowd to house. Yeah, this was Nick, yeah. right? He left shortly after this. And yeah. I remember watching that clip on YouTube years ago and just thinking, man, this guy has checked out. Mm-hmm. And, but when you tell the story about them, that first performance after he commits suicide, when Neil is singing, closing the show with Better Be Home Soon, yeah. and he can't finish it because he's emotional. I'm getting goosebumps too. Yeah, He's yeah, emotional. The whole crowd is emotional. And I, I thought know. that very powerful and i thought this is this is writing this in my mind because i had always just assumed that there was some bad blood and clearly there's not you know clearly there's love there still but it's like anything you know when you lose someone and you don't understand why particularly someone who you know neil had spent what 20 odd years you know with paul most of them working together and certainly all his friends and suddenly he's dead it's like what he could you know he probably knew that he was a little unstable is unfair. It's not fair to say that. But, you know, he had his yeah, – he was complicated, a complicated Sweet. guy. Yes. He wasn't just Hester the Jester, you know, yeah. there were darker sides of it. But, um, you know, for him to suddenly be dead, I mean, that's that's yeah. tough. You really yeah. start to think, what did I miss? Yeah. You know, what didn't yeah. I see? How could I have helped him, you know? Yeah. And there's a what lot of people asking. That I I don't know if I'll ever understand it. Okay, one of the other things that I wanted to bring up that you mentioned uh, in the book is the the unfortunate first selections of first singles off albums that should have been uh, make or break albums. For instance, Iris for one, and then obviously Mm. in the states, chocolate cake was the wrong move off of Woodface. (laughs) Where did that come from? I blame the record company. (laughs) Well, okay, so do you? Because that's another thing that I have always misunderstood is that... No way the record company would have chose chocolate cake. No way. No, there's no way. Yes. So here's Woodface that should have been huge. And all you have to do is put It's Only Natural or Weather With You or whatever. She goes on as the first as the first single to kind of warm everybody right back up again, but you make it chocolate cake, which is a great song, but it's not the thing you want to break back in America with. And they blew it. Yes, they blew it. And if you're already a fan, it's not that big of a deal, but if you're a band that's hoping to kind of be re reemerge and, you know, be beloved back on the charts. Yeah. 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 Yes. It's the wrong move. It's bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, I think they dug in. I reckon they just insisted on it. It was probably one of those things. Look, they made a lot of mistakes with that record. You know, yeah. as Neil later said, what I should have done is recorded these, had Tim feature on these songs mm-hmm. rather than bring him into the band and make him yeah. an element, you know, a, the number four member of what was always a trio. Let's mm-hmm. face it, Crowded House was always this, you know, that weird kind of dynamic that yes. three pieces have you know yeah. like bands like the police and so on mm-hmm. you know they just got zz top they yes. got these weird kind of dynamic and it works brilliantly mm-hmm. bring someone else in and it all it suddenly turns into a square you know it's yeah. all a bit it's a bit hard to maintain and of course you know that's the whole story is half the set tim's up the back doodling away on the keyboards mm-hmm. well, that's not where you put a natural born front man is it no so look yeah i think maybe they dug in i I, I dare say they said, no, nah, this is the one. We're going to release this one. I don't know why, because uh, it really, you know, any cursory listen to the lyric, any American defended at that. It's like, yes. what? Yeah. We're not that bad. Come I on, know. we're good stuff here, you know. So, know. yeah, mystery. But, of course, the record 
weirdly it made them stars in the uk and europe so you know it it did but not on the strength of that song no you know on the strength of the the great songs that were on that record the other great songs i lived in england in cambridge england in 1991 when that album came out really and yes and weather with you and they were already like my favorite band because of the prior two albums although i didn't love low man as much as the debut but anyway um weather with you becomes a huge hit over there you know and i'm so glad because finally the band that i love is getting some recognition they deserve but i'm rec- i'm also going back and forth to the states back to my home and everything and realizing that they're not it's not doing anything back there in fact the first time i saw them live was on that tour and it would have been i couldn't remember if tim was there or not which tells me he must not have been because i think i would have remembered it but um yeah i saw them on that tour that was my first time and i've since Neil and believe it or not, Howard Jones are the two people I've seen live the most, probably yeah, 12, really? 12 times each. Yeah. Howard Jones. I know. Yeah. I was just watching some Rick Astley footage yesterday, if that's of any, uh, you know, <laughs> have a look at it. Rick Astley at Glastonbury. It's hilarious. Oh, he's great. What he does, yes, when he plays with the Foo Fighters or he does the Smith songs or whatever, it's incredible. Oh, okay. Well, good stuff. But yeah, I'm. Um, Okay, Howard Jones. What's Howard Jones doing these days? Well, he's still out there. (laughs) Howard Jones. Yeah, being Howard Jones. It's funny, believe it or not, he, for whatever reason, is huge in Salt Lake City, where I grew up. And he's still, even when he's not that active in the rest of the the world. What's that? Of the the faith? No, he's not. He's not. But for whatever reason, we've adopted him as if he is. And so he knows where his his bread is buttered, because he'll play a show over there and sell out large outdoor amphitheaters and then he'll do everybody else in clubs you know so yeah i just grew up with howard jones and he's one of my very favorites okay okay can we also talk quickly about hall of notes what's your theory yeah so on the recent bad news that just came out i think yeah it from what i understand it has to do with uh selling back the catalog and i think john agreed to sell his portion or something or both portions at oh, an amount so that in like everybody like dylan did and yes. Neil Young did. So, right, that's right, my right, understanding right. is that it's that kind of thing again and okay. daryl i've had john on the show and he's just about the nicest man in the world and daryl is just about the prickliest man in, in the world say that because i know a friend of mine um was the tour wasn't the tour, tour publicist when they came out here mm. And she said, yeah, Daryl's a guy who he's got his sunglasses on all the time and he's at arm's length. And she said with John, she found out that he lived at Woody Creek, which was where Hunter S. Thompson lived. Mm-hmm. Boom. She said every night of the tour, he'd tell me another Hunter S. Thompson story, you know, and yeah. he's just the nicest guy. So, yeah, there's yeah. A definitely a weird dynamic between the two. I've he's, heard for years that they hate each other. What's that? How's it going? How's it going to win? This is well. I think they're probably done. I mean, they have been. They have, from my understanding, kind of hated each other for a long time and just been in a business agreement. And um, I, they'll just do their own thing uh, solo. You know, and yeah, they'll sell the catalog. Daryl, deservedly so, should make about seventy-five percent of whatever it is it sells for. Yeah, like me for money. Have you seen live at Daryl's house? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. No, I know. But he's got plenty of money. He can go out there and tour with Todd Rundgren, which is what he does. And it's yeah. smaller venues, but who cares? You've already yeah. played the big stuff, and John yeah. can do the same. And unfortunately, his 
I mean, his crowd is much smaller, a couple hundred, yeah. you know, yeah, at a little theater or club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he'll make a lot of money still because he's co-written, he co-wrote uh, She's Gone and Out of Time and stuff like that, you know? Okay. I knew it yeah. was, I, I thought it was business, but I didn't know which part of the business it was. Okay. That's my hunch. That's what I think. Yeah. And I've only heard a little bits because it's all really under wraps, but that's my feeling about what's going on. It's gotten so, pretty ugly, though. Yes. Well, it's... In order and all kinds of crazy legalese. Yes, I know. Restraining. I know. My feeling is that it's it's existing drama and tension and anger that's been there for years, just yeah. bubbling to the surface where people are hearing more about it now. You know. Oh my god! It's John and Paul. It is. But it's not Neil and Tim, as we've discussed. No, no, it's yeah. not Neil and Tim. Okay. So speaking of fighting and Neil and Tim. They have a big fight at one point. That's a turning point for both of them. But I don't think you say in the book what they were fighting over. What was the cause of the fight? Do you know? Uh, it was something Tim was doing or not doing on stage. I think it had reached the point. Actually, it's quite funny because they were playing in a place called Byron Bay. And Byron Bay is up on the north coast here in New South Wales. It's the... It would be playing there in the nineties would be like playing on the hate in San Francisco in the sixties. Mm. It's yeah. like the hippie capital of the world. It's a lot about you know if you want to get your chakra realigned and have your aura mm. red, that's the place. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but they got into a punch up, you know, which I think is quite funny. A punch has never been thrown in anger in Byron Bay for God's sake. And uh, mm -hmm. what had happened? My understanding was, I think it was the point where Neil realised probably I've made a big mistake by bringing Tim into the band and Tim had probably realized I'd made a big mistake by joining the band, mm -hmm. you know, because as I said earlier, he really wasn't fully utilized on stage yeah. and he, he bought into a, a very tight knit dynamic, you know, that had existed across those first, what, how long's the band been together now? What, probably five, eight, seven or eight years by that point. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. You know, it's 90, what is it? 91, 91. Yeah, Woodfest. 91. Probably, yeah. yeah, 84, 85 to 91, yeah. They've been Not doing, to mention the split, been... split ends years, yes. Yeah, exactly. They've been doing yeah. this thing for a long time, and um, a dynamic had formed, you know, mm -hmm. a really close, very tight thing. And you know what it's like. It's sort of you, you couldn't explain it to anybody outside of the band, and suddenly Tim's in there, and Tim's this natural-born front man who really should be set a stage all the time. Yes. But he's not because he didn't write or perform on half of the songs. So mm -hmm. anyway, I think they both came to the realization they'd made a big mistake. Tim did something from my understanding, something, you know, might've made a comment on stage backstage. Neil took what Tim described, I think as a, a pathetic, you know, lunge at me or something mm -hmm. like that. It wasn't even a punch. And Neil went and locked himself in the, uh, the tour van out in the car park. And this, this hippie woman came up to the window and she's going, Neil, she could see he was upset. Neil, it's okay. I can help you. I can heal you. And I think, uh, what's your rating on this show? You can Just say whatever you want. I uh, think I know what's I coming. Think response, well, the polite way was no thank you, but I think he really just said, fuck off, hippie. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> and it, it just, and it, but it dragged on. You know, they kept going for, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have to look at the timeline, but they kept going for a while. There were more shows to play. Oh, but it eventually, I think they got to Glasgow, they got to Scotland, and that's where it really fell apart. Oh, oh. So, but Neil also had a sort of, you know, um, a half-assed rumble with uh, Paul Hester at a gig in Milan. And mm -hmm. the story is, you know, Hester was doing something with his drums on stage very loudly. 
while Neil was trying to talk and they clashed. And then after this, the gig, there was a bit of push and shove and they sort of fell down the steps but fell directly into the path of a bunch of fans who were waiting to get autographs after the show. So it's like, Neil, Paul, what's going on? They're wrestling and rolling around the ground. Probably thought it was part of the act, but in reality it was, you know, getting pretty ugly. So, you know, it wasn't all peace and love. You certainly wouldn't. uh, None of these guys have got a WWE career. No, no. At their, that's what you come away with at their core. They're all just decent guys. And yeah, punch-ups like that are out of they're out of character for everybody. Yeah, speaking, of, speaking, yeah. speaking of things being out of character, Neil firing Nick kind of out of nowhere prior to... I started to wonder if around Woodface, if Neil is becoming a little bit of a dick, you know? He can't find his way or something. I don't know what it is. There's no doubt about it. Someone else said that about after reading the book. They said, you didn't say it, but he can be a bit of a dick at times, couldn't he? It's like, well, you know, I think what happened was he'd been in a band forever, you know. Uh, this is the So they're going into making wood fa- what became Woodface. So since, what, 77, it's now, not, it's almost 15 years, Split Ends and Crowded House, all he's ever known as an adult is being part of a band. Yeah. And, you know, not only is he part of a band now, but he's having to write the songs, have the songs rejected, um, you know, try to rack his brain to work out how he's going to please the American record company, all this stuff. And he just looked for a target. And it was the worst possible one because Nick was Nick was as much Crowded House as Neil ever was. You know, he was, I always said Nick was to Crowded House what, um, what, uh, 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 Oh, I've had a brain fade. Uh, what Noel um, Crombie was to split ends. Yes. You know, it was much more than a guy on stage. You know, yeah. he designed the outfits. He was Art the visual guy. Mm-hmm. He was a conceptualizing kind of guy. And yep. he really created the aesthetic that was really important early on for Crowded House, as Noel Crombie did with split ends. So mm-hmm. you don't throw him out of the band. Yeah. <laughs> he designed your stage sets. He designed your album covers. He plays bass beautifully. You know, yes. he's a great harmonizer. He does all these things. But he just, I just think he was lashing out. Who am I going to yeah. lash out now? I've already had a fight with Paul. <laughs> so I think it was Nick who came up to him. You know, it, this lasted maybe a few weeks uh-huh. and said, this is ridiculous. You know, yeah. why are you firing me? And I think right. Neil had a moment of clarity and went, oh, you're right. You know, I, I wonder I, you know, how much of that you touch on. Clear. Yeah, you touch on in the book how when success finally finds Neil, the impact of the Catholic guilt that he feels that I think a lot of us, when we grow up religious, feel some of that. And I wondered if that was a factor in some of this, that, um, I don't know, when you grow up religious, you're almost, you almost fear too much happiness or too much contentment or, or success because it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel true or real or right. You're expecting the big, you know, heavy clanger on the other side, aren't you? Yeah. God's not, he's going to do me in. Yeah. That's right. I'm going to sort you out. You've had a good time now. It's (laughs) going to stop. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were brought up quite devout. They they used to go on holidays with, you know, uh, these two um, Catholic brothers, these priests, you know, they used to go on holidays with them. So they were certainly a devout family. Um, And a lot of that, Neil talks about it a lot. Yeah, Catholic guilt kind of seeps into his DNA. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think, and also he, you know, as I said, he probably shoulders he had and probably still does to a certain degree shoulders a lot of responsibility for things that happen to other people. You know, yeah. that's 
you know, it's part of being, I guess, a, a reasonable human being, isn't it? Yes. You know? And someone who employs people. Jeez, imagine now he employs his sons. How weird is that? <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned that too, Jeff, because one of the things, and I can't remember if it was in the book or I thought of it myself, he, because he hit stardom with I Got You so early, I mean, he's like 21 or whatever, and, and meet Sharon and marry Sharon shortly after that, and they've been together all this time. And she tours with them and they put out pajama club albums and Elroy and Liam are in the band. He never really had his rock star moment of groupies and drugs and, you know, rebellion or whatever. I mean, he followed the Catholic path or whatever out of the from the get-go and has never veered from it that deep, that far, you know, not that we know of, we don't think he's had like affairs or whatever, but. It's, it's really interesting, I think, but what he's done, well, that's certainly, you're absolutely right. What he's done right now with the band by bringing his sons in and, and you know, Sharon's also involved, you know, on the fringes of the band. Everybody, it's a family affair now. Yeah. Um, he's found the perfect way as an empty nester because he's yes. now his kids have left home and found, you know, forged their own way. And I think Liam was living in LA, you know, so there's quite a gulf between them. How do I keep my family together? I invite them into the band, and not yes. yeah, they're competent. They're really competent musicians. Absolutely, they belong there. A lot yes. of conjecture. You know, there was yes. a lot of conjecture at the time. It's like, oh come on, he's turning it into the Partridge Family. You know what the hell's he doing? But the reality was, he brought them in because they a they were family, but b they were really really good players. Yes, you know, yeah. really good players. And I think if I remember correctly, Liam had toured with Crowded House before joining the band. I think he'd been, or was it Elroy? One of them had been. An occasional member of the band anyway mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. liam of course has put out solo records and yeah. done really well betcha duper was a really successful band yeah. so it's not like they're, they're uh novices you know they're really yeah. good musicians but it is as a parent myself of teenage kids mm -hmm. i think what a wonderful way to you know reunite the family Same. you know take them exactly. on another, it's like a working holiday where are we yes. going to go this year dad mm -hmm. well we got 38 dates in America, and then we're going to Europe for the summer. You know? Yes, yes. I mean, it's kind of brilliant. But you're right, he's never really had the closest Neil came to having that, you know, rock star moment was uh, when I Got You came out, particularly here in Australia. There'd be all this graffiti, particularly around Melbourne, saying, I lust for Neil's fin, you know, and things <laughs> like And he just didn't like it. You know, I think yeah. he got chased through a supermarket by teenage girls you know like mm -hmm. a scene out of hard day's night and he said mm -hmm. no nah, i just that's yeah. not for me you know yeah. he seemed to be and i have no 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 reason to suggest otherwise seems to be a guy who's very happy you know yes. found was lucky enough to find his soulmate early on mm -hmm. and you know what is it now 40 years later guy just God. about yeah in the real world that's amazing let alone in the world of you know music and exactly. entertainment that's exactly yep and that was another thing I came away from as someone who loves Neil the way that I do fans, especially in the States, probably often feel like he deserved more. You know, we often, it's like, it, there, there's so much more than a two hit wonder there. There it's more than just a cult thing. He's one of the greatest songwriters ever. If you only listened, you would know, and they deserved more. And I realized reading the book that, probably didn't want more that would have required more uh you know kissing babies and and shaking hands and being more of a politician and, yeah, and I he didn't wasn't built that way you yeah, know he talked about that a bit when don't dream it's over i think got to number two you know in the yeah. states 
he said there was a bit of that. It was like that really awkward cocktail party scene from Hard Day's Night, you know, <laughs> where you're brought in to meet these, you know, councillors and, and congressmen and God knows what. It's That's not him. You know, no. that is, you know, uh, my understanding when Neil goes on the road, what he wants to do is go for a swim during the day, sound check in the afternoon, probably, you know, go back for a meal and a movie, then play the gig. Yeah, that's what yeah. he wants to do. He that's does not it. want to shake hands. He does not want to kiss babies on the forehead. There's no issue with that, but he just, no. it's not his thing. And yes. he, I think he got to understand very young, you know, when he was what, 20, what was required to become, you know, a superstar. Mm -hmm. And he took the other path. It's yeah. a bit like Neil Young, isn't it, in some ways? You know, yeah. Neil Young could have stuck with those three other codgers, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and become a super duper star, you know, of a very mainstream sort of environment. And instead, yeah. he, what's that? What's that quote he had? Um, they were heading for the middle of the road, and I decided to drive into the ditch. <laughs> yes. He says, yeah, "There's something about it looked more interesting over there, you yeah. know." And, and it proved to be true. Proved yes, to be true. It's true. And I think you know, Neil is Finn is a very good example of someone who's found a way to balance a commercial element of his career. A pretty in Australia and New Zealand and Europe, they're still big stars. Crowded yes. House is still, you know, they'll play. I saw them here recently where I am and it was a 10,000 seat venue and Ooh, packed. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. They play big rooms here. They okay. play the biggest venues here, big festivals. They'll go to Europe and do the summer festivals. So, and I think in the States, they're probably still playing small theaters. You know, yes. they're still playing. But I think, I think what you said is right. I think that's what, I think that's, if you said to a 20 year old Neil, what are you doing at 65? Mm -hmm. And you said, and you describe what he is doing, you probably go, yeah, that's good. That's what I want. Yeah. You yeah. Know, yeah, yeah, it's true. One other thing I meant to early mention earlier, I was surprised. So, youth, the producer, has been on here, and all right, what's he yes, like? He's a he's a trip. Number yeah. one, kind of like you, only worse. There was a cat walking over his keyboard and around <laughs> the computer the whole time, and yeah. he had a it was like a pin of Altoids of mints that he just spliff after spliff after spliff the entire time. You know. <laughs> He never okay. stops. And, uh, yeah. and, but I love so much of the music that he's made, including Together Alone. That's my second favorite Credit House album. Amazing and record. I didn't realize how unfavorably Neil views the, either the album or working with youth. I, I thought that was a really wonderful match. And I guess Neil doesn't feel that way. A lot of that came from the Fang Radio stuff that he's done more recently. I listen to those he, things, yeah. yeah In fact, really, not to change the subject, but he almost, the first Crowded House album is my favorite album of all time, and he almost says that he would have done that one differently. And I just hmm. thought, what? It feels like you just want to do everything different, and you want to, and I don't love a lot of the music you make now, so if you'd rather make those albums to sound like what the music you make now is, that's really boring, because Intriguer was really boring. Anyway, yeah. continue. I think, look, I think it's a, just a, you know, sort of, um, you know, don't get me wrong. In no way am I comparing what I do to someone like him, but I know my earlier books, mm. I'll pull them apart. If I, and I've had the opportunity to do so. Even books that people go, oh, I really like that book. It's like, are you kidding? That's crap. You know, I know what is, I know that, that mindset. You really do want to make everything, I don't know, into the vision that you have of your work now. You know, it's sort of like that. You know, uh, I remember as a writer, I used to be so complicated. I, I thought the idea was to use big words and to write really clever sentences and describe things in really flowery prose. And I just thought, that's nonsense. You know, as a writer, a real writer, short and sweet, man. Someone once said to me, 
And maybe Neil has a, a, a sort of an equivalent of this as a musician, as a songwriter. Someone once said to me, Jeff, your book should never exceed the concentration span of someone on the beach during their summer break. Right? Well said. And I thought, good, yeah, solid advice. Yes. Keep it short, keep it sharp, you know? Yes. And maybe Neil has an equivalent of that as a songwriter. Maybe. But if someone had said that to me 20 years ago, I would have said, that's outrageous. How dare yes. you think my yes. work is so trivial? But, you know. You learn, live and learn, right? That's true. But um, yeah, it's. I think it's very hard not to want to fiddle with your earlier stuff. Yes, I mean, I can see that. I know. You can't leave it alone, man. Leave it alone. What they all do it. So yeah, drives me nuts. uh, But going back to youth, yeah, I think he calls him a chancer. A -hmm. chancer is someone who just a bit of an opportunist. Yeah, and I'm. uh, There's no doubt at all. I, I hate to say, but I see a little bit of that in Rick Rubin. Yeah. Rick Rubin okay. Yes. Terrific. But he doesn't. I don't quite work out. I can't get my head around what he actually does. Well, he, he calls of, himself a reducer, not a producer. And go. I think that's a perfect way of saying it. Yes. Yeah. He just seems to um, yeah work with amazing people. Tom Petty, Paul McCartney, all these amazing artists, you know, Beastie Boys. You know, these great people. But I'm never quite sure whether he had any serious impact on their work. He'll be the first to tell you he doesn't know how to turn the knobs. He doesn't know what they're for. It's almost more like he's a, he's a, he's a taste gatekeeper, you know, like he lets them do what they want to do. And then he says, do you like that? Cause I liked it or I didn't like it. And here's why. And then they change. I don't, it's, he's a reducer, not a producer. That's what I always think about. uh, Tom Petty documentary last night. What's it called? Yes. Um, Uh, Running down a dream. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Ruben obviously is a big part of that because it's about wildflowers. And it just made me think about youth, to be honest, because mm-hmm. I knew I was talking to you. And these, I wonder whether they're similar characters. Hippies, uh, um, uh, I don't think Ruben is, but he certainly looks like an old stoner, you know, mm-hmm. um, and who probably at a point were very hot and everybody wanted to work with them. And they certainly found themselves working with some people. But there's moments in the book and there's moments in that that story of making Together Alone where youth would be asleep. You know, they'd be yes. going to say, wake yes. up. What the yeah. hell are you doing? You know? So, you know, who knows? Um, yeah. yeah, Neil, yeah, you're right. In short, Neil hasn't spoken very favorably of him. No. It's too bad. I love it. Yeah. You detail okay. in the book this hilarious story. He leaves split ends. He drives away. He gets in a car wreck. And all the guys who he just left start passing him on the street, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we need to, to, to set it up. So what's happened? Yes, Tim's, left, Tim's left the band. Tim's had a, a huge solo record here. Escapade is still one of the highest selling records in this country. Crazy. Monstrous surprise hit. Absolute yep. you know, out of nowhere kind of hit. Uh, he's fallen in love with Greta Scacci. Yeah, the world has just opened up to him. It's like after all these years of toil with split ends, Tim's off. You know, he said, I'm out, out of the band. Um, Neil... His advice to Neil was, you know, it's it's probably you're better off starting your own band. You know, mm-hmm. he's told it, but they have commitments. They've got to make another album for for Mushroom, who was their label here. Um, they want to do another tour just to say goodbye. Um, but there's a point where Neil has finally come to accept that he too has got to pull the pin. Invites all the band members. They all come to a meeting, you know, and they all he, Neil breaks what is the inevitable news to them all. Okay, fine, and they all drive away. And Neil, yeah, he has a he has a wreck mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's, you know, dazed and a bit bewildered standing by the side of the road. And one by one, all the other members of the band drive, not knowing he was there, of course, just drive past him. Look, there's Noel. 
well, there's Eddie. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> and there's something incredibly symbolic about the yes. whole. Yes. <laughs> you know, he's stuck in a wreck. I mean, it's funny because I have this um, I have this kind of barometer I use. People ask me, oh, you know, you wrote about X, you wrote about Daniel Johns from Silverchair, you wrote about Neil Finn, you know, you met these people. You know, what are they like as humans? And I always said the barometer of someone I, I really admire is the person if I was with a flat tyre by the side of the road, they pull over and help. Um, whereas a lot of the people I've met, they might beep their horn and wave. Uh -huh. um, some people I've met would drive around deliberately looking the other way. <laughs> I think, I think Neil would be a, a stop and wind down the window. Yeah. He'd be a, yeah. Do you need me to call someone? You're okay. Yeah. yeah. Carry on. You know, right, mate. Off you yeah. go. yes, I think you're probably <laughs> yeah. right. Just the vision of him by the side of the road waving. You know, <laughs> and I think he tells the police, "There go all my friends." My friends. <laughs> so funny. It's a bit of sweet, right? Yes. It's sorry, funny, though. I was, I was thinking about. Sorry, I was at the Opera House at a show just a couple of nights ago, um, at the spot where Crowded House played their big farewell show in 1996. I saw, uh, actually, I saw the War on Drugs and Spoon, Ooh. best doubleheader I've seen for years. Oh, oh man, it was, and it was a It's a beautiful setting. It's on the forecourt of, you know, one of the most magnificent buildings in not yes. just Australia, the world, you know, this amazing building with the harbour, the harbour bridge. It's just yes. in the Botanic Garden just behind it. It's a fantastic spot. And um, the story is that when Crowded House played there in 1996, what was supposed to be their big farewell, they somehow squeezed. The other night there were 8,000 people there and it felt full. They got 200,000 people at this show. You know, it's yeah. just unbelievable. And they played the show and it's a incredibly emotional experience there's tears there's laughter you know they play with the great songs the crowd's gone berserk you know they wouldn't let them off the stage and they've finally gone shows over lights are down gears being packed up they stumble backstage to this little makeshift kind of green room and there's some dude sitting there drinking a beer like a guy just you know a punter in his shorts and a t-shirt just sitting there having one of it and they said who are you? Right. And he said, oh, I just snuck in through the back fence. And I was looking at the spot the other night. You could quite easily do it, right? And they said, oh, well, you might as well stay. <laughs> I wanted to find that guy. I want to track him down because he was like the luckiest man on earth. Yes, you know, he, that story blew me away. I had that in my notes. 200,000 who just happened to stumble <laughs> into the backstage area because nowadays there'd be 20 security guards who'd throw you out, probably throw you yes. in the harbour. No you know, back, back then the rules were a little different and he just and he was quite happily sitting there drinking one of their after show beers which i thought was oh, quite it's nice. great so great yeah, i was standing there the other night going it happened just over there yeah <laughs> wow there should be a plaque you know? no kidding yes yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay kind of landmark. Yeah. sorry so that my is, notes are on my actually, phone in all seriousness that's a very iconic um moment in australian entertainment australian live music that show that's that amazing. farewell old show is still regarded as probably the biggest show, one of the biggest, certainly in the last 20 or 30 years ever staged here. And, you know, the, one of those shows that if everybody who said they went to it, there was actually, it actually went, there was yes. about a million people there, yes. you know, it was that kind of thing. See, it's, we just don't get a feel for that kind of scale over here because of how different, you know, the crowds would be. Um, yeah. Do you have a favorite Neil Finn composition? That's an excellent question. I like, I like. She will have her way a lot. That's okay. one of the songs that sticks with me. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's one of those day-to-day kind of things. Yeah. There's a song I've been listening to a lot lately called, uh, was it Where's My Room? Mm. Which I think on the, was it on the record he did with Liam? Was it on the Light Sleeper record, I think? Yes, I believe so. Yes. And it's about the madness of, you know, being on the road, in a ser- staying in a series of lookalike hotels. And, you know, I've, I've had a little bit of that as a kind of roving journalist back in the 90s. And I can understand how alienating and weird that experience is. It's like being sucked into a cocoon, man. You sure. just, you know, where am I? Uh, what city? Hello, right. Cleveland. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I think you could, it's one of those things that could change from day to day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I love the song Together. Like, Distant Sun is just, you know. Yes. I think I always thought I'd like to do a podcast called the songs I wish I wrote, <laughs> and that would you be should. one of them. Everybody uh, else has a podcast. You should do one too. But um, be great at it. I think that would, be, that would be on the list of songs yeah. that, and probably "Don't Dream It's Over." Obviously, like pretty obvious choices, but just perfect bits of songcraft. Sure. Yeah, and then the composition of "Don't Dream It's Over" is always, which I go into in great detail in the book mm-hmm. about the you know the um, uh, inspiration of "Whiter Shade of Pale." Which I thought yeah, was really interesting. Which I you know? did not know until reading that. That was interesting. Something I learned recently. So the session guitarist Tim Pierce has been on this show, and uh, he was he played on that first album. And in fact, I think he's the one who plays that riff, that wow. opening riff. Yeah, the Kiwi Strum, they call it. Yeah, is that what it is? So yeah, I have to admit was, that's always kind of ruined it for me. I like to <laughs> think that Neil played that riff, but it's actually a session guy named Tim Pierce. Well, I had no idea. No, that's really yeah. interesting. They call it the Kiwi Strum because in New Zealand, um, particularly in the Maori community, which are the indigenous people there, they're really musical, like they're amazingly musical people. They could just sing the phone book and you go, mm-hmm. oh my God, that's fantastic. Yes. But they campsite, you know, fire. Uh, camping, that kind of stuff is their thing. And there would always be some dude with a guitar yeah. who could just come up and start strumming. And that kind of opening notes to Don't Dream yeah. It's Over, that's very much in that mold of what they call the Kiwi strum. You know, yes. it's just this lovely, leisurely, but very hooky, you know, mm-hmm. a few notes, very simple, and it just drags you straight into the mood of the song. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, yeah, I was really surprised. I, I didn't know too much about the inspiration for that, just that really simple organ solo. I but, know, you know it's and it's Mitchell. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's white a shade of pale. Yeah. 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 I had no yeah. idea, but now that you say it, it makes perfect sense. And it made uh, the song, you know, yes, complete. It really did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mitchell's another one. Oh, he so. and I share a birthday. I've, I've, well, thank you for asking. I my favorite composition of all of his is "Message to My Girl." Oh well, uh, yeah. I he, love that. He played it on piano when I just saw them recently on an yep. upright piano. Brilliant. Crowd yeah. just went ape shit it was fantastic yes. yeah. whenever i see him that's usually what it is just him and a keyboard of some kind uh playing yeah. it it's so lovely but my favorite uh crowded house songs it usually goes when you come at number one and carry mm-hmm. carry at number two. Oh, okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. when um, you come to great life on too and of course yeah. there's funny stories about you know he's liam not wanting to ask neil what it was about until he was a little older Yes, <laughs> and it so, was about it was about earthquakes. It's not about orgasms. It's like, oh, so okay, so this is uh, something I want to ask you about too, because it never occurred to me that that was a sexual innuendo. And then I read an article years and years ago that um, listed the song for some. It may have been like Entertainment Weekly or Rolling Stone or something. I don't remember. And I remember the person saying the balls it took to write a song literally about orgasm. And I thought, (laughs) 
really? Is that what, am I just an idiot that I didn't pick up on that? That's what that was. And I choose not to think about that because it's a little too much for me. But on yeah. those Fang radios, he touches on it. I still can't get a clear answer whether he intentionally was trying to be sexual or he was saying oh, what he wanted to say, stream of conscious, and I just said, if it's if you think it's sexual, that's okay. I'm okay with that. It's like the Divinal song, I Touch Myself. Yes. Remember that, which was a huge hit. Australian band, big hit in the States. Oh, and Chrissy Amphlett was going, no, no, no. It's just about being touched inside. It's like, yeah, come on, man. Right, right, right. It's like Madonna trying to explain away all her lyrics. It's like, yes. come on, please. Yes. But I think, I think Neil probably enjoyed messing with people's heads a yes. little bit. Um, but he's, he does present a very convincing uh, explanation for that. And also for um, when Into Temptation came out here, yes. everybody's going, oh, there's trouble in paradise. What's happening with Neil and Sharon? You know, and then there's this fantastic story about him being in a hotel, again, on the road, stuck between the football team's room and the netball. I think they were netballers or softball team. And every, all night he would hear, you know, knocking on the door and people going from one to, room to <sighs> another. And here all he's trying to do is get some sleep stuck between these two, you know, madly shagging rooms. Yes. And everybody here thought, oh, Neil, boy. <laughs> That's quite an admission. What's going on? What's wrong? Is there trouble in Loveland? You know, and as you know, as, you, as we find out, it's nothing of the sort. So yes. he would enjoy it. He would love as a songwriter. He'd love messing with people's yes. heads just a little yeah. bit. That's yes. one of my favorite songwriters is Warren Zevon, and uh, he messed. With, you know, he messed with a lot of actually interesting. The, the Warren Drugs did. Um, oh, what's this song? Sweeter. Play that dead man song. I played all night long yes. the other night. Okay. And mm -hmm. apparently the night before they did accidentally like a martyr, you know, oh, so no they got way. a real obsession. So he was another, you know, someone who I, a lot tougher than Neil, obviously yes. a lot harder than Neil, yes. but, um, you know, they're both great wordsmiths, yes. both really, really good craftsmen, not in a pretentious way, but in a really playful and adventurous and kind of. Agreed. Poetic Agreed. Way, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, so talking about this kind of, is it or isn't it sexual? I had never keyed into the fact that Temple of Low Men, that the low, this is a, oh, yeah. this is some kind of a thing it? on Cunnilingus. Yeah, I, I didn't get that one when I first heard it. That's for sure. No. no. <laughs> you know, again, I think, was it, or was it a funny angle to when they were promoting the the album, someone mentioned it and they went, yeah, let's latch onto that, you know, because yeah, it know. can be anything you want it to be, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anything you want it to be and in that case it was the most unlikely thing yes because you know, it has, particularly with the first record their videos and their outfits and their kind of um you know the three amigos of pop thing they had going on yeah. they were seen as almost squeaky clean yes. you know something's always talking about sex it's like it's yes. outrageous you know you kind of oral sex are you mad you can't promote a record <laughs> on that basis so yeah i kind of like it and i reckon they would have loved it because yes. suddenly, you know, it's messing with the formula just a bit, yes. messing with the image. Yeah. So, yes. you know, uh, I'm sure Neil knew what he was writing when he wrote, when you come, no doubt ah. about it. Yeah. And, and loved the reaction, but then had a very valid explanation for it. So sure. maybe he's a wannabe weatherman. I don't know. Meteorology might've been his thing. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's <laughs> listening to that broadcast and having, hearing Liam so awkwardly, talk to him about the song is just beautiful it's really, it is. really i need to go back and listen um i could do this for hours jeff you you're indulging me on just one of my greatest joys and if i can return the favor by turning people on to your book 
books, plural, all of them, then this was uh, this benefits us both. I am so grateful for your time. So oh, grateful for your time. Thank you, Jeff. No, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And like I say, I'll send you links to Neil's go-to guy. I would yeah, love it. He's not doing anything till June, as far as I know. I think they're going well, to Well, then Europe he has not, no reason not to chat with me. Maybe you know? after Christmas. Give him Christmas. Maybe. Yes. Give him Christmas. I know, will. Because he's, he's got to check in with Tim, make sure everything's okay. You know, Of course. But, uh, yes. Yeah, I right. promise. Imagine, <laughs> the gift. Imagine their Christmas gifts. I'd, I'd think, you know, the where they live in Parnell in Auckland. Very nice part of town. I That's, wondered about that. You mentioned that in the book, and I was trying to envision what my local version of that might be. Well, I found out that his stint in Fleetwood Mac enabled him to buy a house in Los Feliz in, in L.A., mm -hmm. and I, I get the impression you need a few dollars in the bank to do that, and I think he did it purely from Fleetwood Mac earnings. So there's a few dollars in the bank. It's crazy. <laughs> you know what my Facebook memory was on Sunday? It was my wife and I seeing them in concert exactly five years ago. Oh, wow. Ago. Where they yeah. They played at the, uh, it's called the Pepsi Center. It's where the, it's the big basketball venue. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. It's still a good size room. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, it's the biggest you're going to get other than a stadium. Right. Okay. So it's the okay. biggest sport hall there is basically here oh. in Colorado. Yeah. Fantastic. Did they tour there this year, the States? Um, yes. And in fact, I wasn't able to go because that show was rescheduled because of COVID two or three different times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, yes. And the night that they finally came, I can't remember what it was, but I think I had tickets to a different concert or I was out of town or whatever. Whatever yeah. it was, I missed it. But as I said earlier, I see Tim every or a Neil every chance I get. Yeah. Um, I grew up growing up in Salt Lake City. No bands really ever came through there, you know. Right. And then in 1991, we moved to England for a couple of years, and I get to see them there. And then I lived in the Bay Area for a while. In fact, um, he came through San Francisco with, and Wendy Melvoin was yeah. the guitarist, which mm. I was always surprised why she was there. And you touch on it in the book; they just hit it off, writing songs and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's worked with so, some interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and she's. I remember seeing her on Diamonds and Pearls tour as part of yeah. Prince's band. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. Love her. Yeah. Big crush on her. All those things. Loved it. And uh, <laughs> well, so, yeah. It's. I'm afraid it's not going to be reciprocated. It's not gonna, I, I, I know. I, I came to terms with that years ago. Yes. It's not. I, that was a different. discovery as I wrote the book. I wasn't aware of that, and now <laughs> yes. I know. Now yes. I know. Now the we know. To learn That's exactly uh, right. right. All right. There you have it, Jeff Apter. I love that. I might have to read more of his books and bring him back on here because he's just a fun hang no matter what. We're going to close it out with the with the Neil and Liam song that he mentioned in here. And again, check out the book. I hope I'm getting these dates right. We were a little fuzzy on it, but I believe on the 13th of February is going to be available everywhere. Um, if nothing else, it'll be available. That's when the paperback version comes out back down under. So seek it out. If you may, if you're a diehard fan like I am, you may already know this book exists. I don't know, but anyway, look for it either way. It's great. Uh, huge thanks, obviously, to Yan to put this thing together, Yan the Man. And uh, we have a lot of other bonus stuff in the can already. We've got two other deep dives, one other book club, and we still have to record our recap of 2023. So anyway, be on the lookout for more bonus material coming. All right, thanks everybody. We love you.